Zephyrus Euthrot sensed that something was abroad in the night. Something, perhaps, spawning in the fam uh, famously uh, abomination haunted Quarth Forest to the northeast. But no matter how she tried, she couldn't yet pinpoint its location. Perhaps she would have had better luck if she stood still, but that she was unwilling to do. A task awaited her in the city ahead, and one didn't dawdle when the Lady of Loss called her to serve. So, so trusting in the skills she'd worked so hard to master to protect her if necessary, her legs tirelessly eating up the miles, she simply jogged on down the trail that wound across the hilly grasslands. Her one, her one concession to prudence was to pull a cestus, a leather strap loaded with iron pellets into the knuckles of each hand. She was supposed to look like a meek and unoffensive traveler, a pilgrim, perhaps. Seeking a shrine of the morning lord, the binder of what is known, or some other weak and contemptible deity, and the enchanted weapons rather spoiled the illusion, but at the moment she had no companions to remark on, on them, and in any ca case, certain creatures existed, existed that even the naked fist of a monastic couldn't damage. She was passing a stand of twisted elms when something cracked like a whip. She pivoted, dropped into a fighting stance, and peered, using the peripheral of her vision. At first she saw nothing. She was an initiate of the night, yet human, and despite her training, darkness could still hinder her to a degree. Finally, though, she spotted the source of the noise. For an instant, it looked like a long strip of black cloth caught in the branches. Then, however, she realized she was looking at a living creature crouched on its perch, its wings spread and poised to flap. A, fly a flyer's round eyes glared. It glared and it bared its fangs. Come on, Sefri thought, either attack or clear off. You're wasting my time. Then she felt something rushing at her back. She spun to to the side and a sec and a second creature it no and a second creature it foaming its Foaming jaws, gaping wide to bite, hurled through the space where she just, where she, she, she was just standing. The tip of one furry, beating wing brushed her, her cow back half, 
exposing the shaven skull beneath. Seen up close, the beast resembled the huge bats that sometimes lived in the biggest, deepest caverns, but with a hint of submerged humanity in the shape of the head and torso, and the overdevelopment of its bandy legs. For one attacker to distract her while the other sneaked up at her back bespoke more than animal intelligence, and she thought she understood what manner of brute she faced. The cesty has had been a sound idea, even if they were of no use at that moment. The werebat soared up out of range and before she could throw a punch. The chakrams she carried concealed about about her person, sacred to the Lady of Loss, though they were, didn't carry the same sort of sorceress enhancement, and thus were apt to prove ineffective against shape change. Such creatures possessed a degree of resistance to mundane's uh, sources of injury, but initiates of Sefri's order mastered not one lethal discipline but two, and thus she still possessed ways of attacking the whereabouts at range. She snatched a pinch of sand from a hidden pocket, tossed it in the air, and breathed words of power. As sometimes happened, hap, as sometimes happened, her magic made the darkness shift and whisper under her. The werebat that had just swooped aloft lurched in the air, then plummeted fast asleep. It smashed into the ground with a bone-shattering crunch, and the corpse began to flow. The wings shrinking as it reverted to its alternate form. The other shapeshifter shot out of the twisted tree. Perhaps it, its companion, perhaps its companion's death, had enraged it, or maybe it simply wanted to deny the sorceress the opportunity to cast another spell. In any case, it plainly intended. A, a furious assault. Had she not schooled her features to resist such random impulses, Sephiroth might have smiled. She'd done her best to unlearn all emotion, save for the spite and bitterness befitted a servant of her goddess. But in truth, she never quite managed to quash the joy she took in killing. And though striking someone dead with magic was satisfying in its own way, nothing matched the exhilaration of destroying an opponent with her hands. The werebat swooped at her. She sidestepped, and gnashing fangs in the gnashing fangs and punched at the creature's chest, seeking a smash right through the ribs and into the vital organs beneath. The blow slammed home, 
shattered bones and the shapeshifter shrieked. The cry pitched so high that it was more a stabbing pain in her ears than an actual sound. It outstretched, its outstretched wings swatted her. She yielded to the impact permitted it to fling her to the ground and instantly subsulted to her feet. The werebat flew upwards, but in a jerking, labored manner that revealed she'd hurt it badly. Perhaps it would flee without delaying her any further. Despite the pleasure she was taking in the demise, she supposed that it would be for the best. It didn't flee. It wheeled high above likely out of range of any of her spells until a couple more vague black shadows joined it. Sephiroth couldn't tell precisely how many there were, but evidently an entire flock. If that was what one called a family of werebats, had gone hunting across the hills that night, and a wounded one had called them all in to deal with it. Good. If she killed them all there and then, she wouldn't have to worry about another ambuscade later. The werebats died at her. It took long enough to give her time for another bit of sorcery. She rattled off a sibilant couplet, flung her arm in a cabalistic gesture, and a jagged staff of darkness leaped from her fingertips. It stuck the creature in the, in, in, in the lead. The lycanthropes' wings flailed crazily out of time with one another and it veered off the course. Then its fellows were right over her head, or nearly so. Fortunately, their size precluded their attacking, all, all at exactly the same time, thus they foul each other's wings. She blocked with her forearm, blasting a set of foaming jaws out of line, then whipped the blade of her hand against the werebat's neck. She grabbed hold of its loose hide, yanked it out of the air, and smashed it down to the ground. She nearly followed up with a stamp kick before remembering that her sandal-clad foot likely wouldn't hit hard, enough to overwhelm a lycanthrope's mystical defenses. Unfortunately, she didn't have time to drop to one knee and continue bashing the brute with her hands. The next shape changer was already hurling at her. She killed that one cleanly with a spear hand strike to the chest, and leaped clear before its body could flop down on top of her. Another plummeted at her, saw that she was ready for it, and swooped high again. Something rustled in the grass. She glanced down. Apparently, when she'd hit the one werebat in the throat, 
machine injured it in a way that prevented it its taking to the air again. But it was still game. It was fiddling at her. She sprung back for it and swept her hand through a mystic pass. The shadow of a nearby sapling reared from the ground and lashed itself around the lichen field. The creature flailed helplessly inside the inky it, inside the inky coils. Sephiroth knew that when she focused on the ground on the grounded brute, its fellow had surely died, and by then was nearly in striking range. Piercing upward, she whirled, and there was it glistened fa its glisten glistening fangs mere mere inches from piercing her flesh. One one such bite, assuming it didn't kill her outright, could change her into a creature like itself. The prospect didn't horrify her as it might have many other persons, but neither was it anything to be desired. She was already the instrument of the dark goddess intended in, intended her. She was already the instrument the dark goddess intended her to be. She grabbed the werebat by the neck to hold its teeth at bay. Her weight dragged it out of the air and locked it together. They tumbled over the grass. She kept hold of its throat and squeezed the cesty lending, lending the choke hold and efficacy it might otherwise have lacked. The werebat struggled fanatically or frantically, but only for a few heartbeats. Then its spine snapped. Sephri sprung to her feet. Nothing else was willing against the stairs or streaking down at her. If any shape-changers remained aloft, they'd evidently decided to leave or hurt their comrades unavenged and seek easier prey. That just left the bodies on the no, that just left the bodies on the ground, some of which had reverted into entire no, almost entirely to human. And the shapeshifters still tangled in the shadowy or shadowed tentacles. When it saw her looking at it, it stopped squirming and abased itself. Despite its bestial features, the enormous the enormous pointed ears and wrinkled snout, she could tell it was begging for mercy, perhaps offering itself as her slave if only she would spare its life. Maybe it truly imagined that she might. Maybe it hoped she'd recognize some degree of kinship between them, both killers, both hunters of the dark. If so, it had mistaken her nature. Sephiroth had never been particularly prone of sympathy, 
and her training had purged every trace of it from her soul. Insofar as her limited mortal mind permitted, she strove to emulate her goddess's hatred of all things, whether good or evil, fair or foul, human or monstrous. Killing gave her joy, but she labored not to seek or wallow in the pleasure, but rather to slaughter as an expression of a pure, cold will to destroy. Such being the case, she wouldn't play with the werebat, wouldn't torture it or savor its dis desperation. She lunged forward and drove her fist into the center of its low forehead, shattering its skull. She took a deep breath, and without a backward glance, she crowded on, carrying retribution and ruin to Weeble, as her dark father had commanded. Mary found the stairs at the end of a short, strangely qu quiet passage off the busy sex sextrance intersection where her contact, the plump man, had said they would be. As she regarded the steps twisting down into the ground, she felt an uncharacteristic pang of doubt. Maybe Hostagem was right. Perhaps it was a bad idea. If she was out of her no, if she was out of her element in the streets and alleys of Weeble, it could only be worse in the cities, underways. Supposedly a labyrinth of tunnels where the gray blades never ventured and rogues of every stripe did precisely as they pleased. But for that very reason, it seemed the best place to seek news of the green-eyed thief and the stolen treasure. Maliki knew Mary certainly hadn't had any luck above ground. So she, she scowled her misgiving away, loosening her sword and dagger in, her sh in their sheaths and adjusting the small steel buckler strapped to her wrist. She didn't much like the latter. The weight didn't bother her, but the armor made her feel awkward when shooting. Still, she thought that in the cramped confines of a subterranean warren, she might find a shield would more useful than the bow. She nonetheless carried strong and ready in her hand. She crept down the steps, disturbing a rat that squealed and scuttled on ahead, on ahead of her. She passed beyond the light leaking down from above the total darkness, you know, into total darkness. Her pulse tickled, ticked a little faster. Then, to her relief, a dim glow blossomed ahead. She stepped off 
stairs into the arch tunnels, which was neither as a wet nor a melodorous as she expected. She imagined that underways was a fancy way of saying sewers, and in fact a faint stench of newsome waste waft in, in from somewhere, but there was no stream of muck flowing sluggishly down the center of the passage. Evidently, the two systems were separate, at least to some degree. The tunnel was essentially dark, no hindrance uh, to orcs, goblins, and other creatures that could see in such conditions. Patches of pale sheen smeared the earthen walls in a couple of places, evidently to accommodate those who could not. Mary couldn't tell if they were some species of luminous mold or splashes of a man-made pigment. Trying to look at, no, trying to look as if she truly knew where she was heading, as if she belonged down there, she marched away from the stairs. Around the first bend, she came upon two men huddled together who eyed her spe speculatively and left off and left off their whispering until she passed by. Not far behind them, the corpse of a chubby halfling lay face down. The victim, no bigger than a half-grown human child, bore more than a dozen wounds and had left a trail of blood like a snail. Ev evidently, he'd crawled several yards on his belly while his assailants hacked and stabbed him. The passage twisted repeatedly, and branching tunnels snaked away into darkness or into blackness. Mari's sense of direction never failed her in the wild, but she had the unpleasant feeling that, even so, she could lose herself down there. She was glad her first destination was only supposed to be a short walk from the stairs. She descended, the gladder still when the lamp-lit door came into to view. According to the information she'd received, Melder's door was the only true inn in the underways, and marginally safer than either of the taverns found below. It seemed a reasonable place to continue her inquiries. She pulled open the heavy door and stepped into a surprising spacious, spacious common room whose, wa whose walls were lined with stone. The air was damp and chilly, and the glows of a few hanging 
lanterns half occluded behind their hinged black iron hoods. Still another gloom outside. She might almost have found a place welcoming, if not for the way all the, the surly-looking patrons, human, orcs, towering dogs, dog-faced gnolls, and horned, scaly, diminutive kobolds turned to stare at her. It was disheartening, heartening, and in, by definition, catered to wayfarers, to strangers. Yet, even mere something about the way she looked or carried herself instantly branded her an outsider. Well, to Fury's heart with it, she'd be damned if she'd let a pack of ruffians make her feel self-conscious just for looking like a righteous law-abiding citizen. She returned sneer for sneer then strode towards an empty blade, her table, towards an empty table, until something flitted across her field of vision then hovered in front of her face. She found herself nose to snout with a tiny dragon or wavering, its wings shimmering, beating fast as a hummingbird's, its skinny body only a trifle longer than her middle finger. Startled, she recoiled and the Outlookers laughed at her uh, discomfiture. Discomfiture. Their mirth made her flush with anger, and the miniature dragon's scrutiny made her weary. She scarcely seemed large enough to pose a threat, yet it might possess a nasty bite or something or even the capacity to puff flames or poison into her eyes. She lifted her hand to swat it away and a bass voice rapped. Don't, don't. She froze. She froze. The wiggled reptile whirled past her and away and she looked around. A handsome man was smiling back at her. His barbered hair and eyes were black, and his skin was dark in a way that awed nothing, that owed nothing to the touch of the sun. His purple velvet breeches and tunic were cut tight, the better, perhaps to flatter his slender frame save for exceptionally baggy sleeves that hung all the way down over his knuckles. Looking more like a child's toy than an actual weapon, a dainty hand crossbow dangled from a double-loop scarlet belt with a good buckle. 
More tiny dragons fluttered all around him, as if they were bees, and he, a particularly succulent flower. Neri experienced a sudden unpleasant mental image of all the creatures swarming on a victim simultaneously. How could any one person defend against such an assault? No matter how adroit an archer or fencer she might be. Please don't hit my eye, the dark man continued. Would, you wouldn't like it if I hit you in one of yours. I won't, Mary answered. The beast surprised me as well. No harm done, he sketched. No, no harm done. He sketched a bow, elegant and pure, functory at the same time. I'm Melder. Welcome to the door. He grinned and added, "My instinct tells that my instincts tell me you haven't come in search of accommodations." No, she said, just beer. Ah. We have a good ale brewed hereabouts, a fine dark lager from Faymarsh, and the local stuff will do. Perhaps you'll lift a tanker with me. You honor me. Perhaps be seated, and perhaps, no, please be seated, and I'll return in a, in a trice. She did as he, he bade her, then divided her attention between watching her fellow patrons who were gradually returning to the murmuring conversations her arrival had interrupted and the little reptiles flying about. They wandered wherever they wished and even the drunkest and most brutish looking guests resisted the impulse to slap him away. Melder sat, two foaming leather jacks on the table, then sat down across from her. My small friends interest you, he said. They're beautiful, she replied. They're certainly the prettiest things in this Danko place or were until a few minutes ago, he said with a smile. They keep the bugs and rats down too. I believe I introduced you, but I didn't catch your name. Or I, I believe I introduced myself, but I didn't catch your name. Mary Buckman, a lovely name. It fits you. And what, dear Mary, brings you below? You have a sensible look about you. Tell me you aren't simply indulging your curiosity that you aren't one of those fools who thinks no visit to wicked weevil is complete without an excursion to the underways. She sipped her ale. He was right. It was good. The flavor hearty and not too bitter. Suppose I came down here to do some business, she said. Could you 
point me to the right person. He chuckled. Murray felt a punch of irritation and asked, What's funny about that? Please forgive me, Melder said. It's just that one doesn't rush these conversations. The parties generally generally sample a drink or three, chatting of nothing in particularly acquiring a sense of one another before anyone broaches the actual point of the discussion. I suspect you know better. You tried to play the game, but your impatience betrays you, or betrayed you. She knew what he meant. Out in the wild, she would have been more uh, circumspect. She would have, she would have been more circumspect. She'd once revealed with a tribe a, a, of centaurs for three days and nights. She, no, she once reveled with a tribe of centaurs for three days and nights, satisfying all their elaborate rituals and hospitalities. Before so much of mentioning the reason for her visit to their camps. But Weevil and her current dilemma made her twitchy. I haven't much time, she said, or at least I fear I haven't. I understand, he said, for all you know, the precious saddlebag was already, has already left town. Mary glared at him and said, You knew who I was from the start. Melder struggled. I didn't know your name, but people are naturally talking about the robbery inside the Paragon and the ranger tramp, uh, tramping around town trying to trace the surviving thief. What was in the pouch, anyway? I don't know myself. He grinned, his teeth a flash of white in his, in his swathy face. A tiny green dragon settled on his shoulder for a moment, almost as if whispering in his ear, then flew away. You're a bad liar, he said, probably because you haven't learned to enjoy it. If I knew what you're looking for, perhaps I could help you find it. And maybe she thought you'd co convert, and maybe she thought you'd convert, or covet, covet it for yourself. Marie asked, are you willing to help me? Well, it all depends. I, I make a tolerable living from the door, and as you can imagine, my guests don't, don't rest their heads here because I have a reputation of tattling. <coughs> Still, it's conceivable you could persuade me to be of some assistance. Comely as you are, grubby, from the road, of course, but a bath would fix that up. 
she made a spitting sound then said apparently you haven't known many rangers at least not not of my my guild we don't pay for anything that way a pity if you exploited them properly like a sensible blast your charms could be a mighty mightier weapon than than that bow forget it i am willing to pay a hundred symbian nobles if you furnish information that leads me to what i see perhaps some gold up front would serve to jog your memory or sharpen your wits ever since i started poking around said mary folks have been hinting they can help me then they ask for coin in advance had i heeded them my purse would be empty i'll pay you when i recover what was in the saddlebag not before and how sweet mary do i know that i can trust you because i swear because I swear it by Our Lady of the Forest. He laughed and said, Your vow delightful. She glowered at no, she she glowered at him, then asked, Can you help me or not? I assume you took a good look at the three thieves who died. Yes, describe them. She did, and based on his expression, asked, You recognize them? I believe so, though I didn't know them well. Their names were Gavith, Curity, and Dahl. She felt a thrill of excitement. What gang did they belong to? she asked. Melder shook his head and answered, None. They were petty operators, really, gleaning what the gangs don't bother to take. I don't see how four such little fish working strictly by themselves could have conceived an elaborate plan to steal the saddlebags as soon as it reached Weevil. They wouldn't even have known it was coming. Somebody must have hired them to seize it. That would be my guess, Melder said. Have you any notion of who that person might have been? Someone in a spy in pl- someone with a spy in place, Mary thought, either there or in Ormuth, to report on what was supposed to have been secret transaction a secret transaction beyond that she couldn't say she spread her hands whoever it was Melder said he was plenty no he has plenty of coin or at least convinced the thieves he did he wouldn't have tried to rob the Pierre without a substantial fee in the offing. Did the deal, no, did the dead outlaws have a particular comrade with whom they often work? Someone thin, 
bearded and around my age, green eyes and skilled with a knife. I fear I can't tell you, as I said, I don't know them personally, and we have so many near-do-wells skulking about Weevil. New, new ones every day. The river barges float them in, and the dead cart rolls them out. Well, presumably, somebody knew them, Mary replied. At least you've given me a place to start, and I thank you. She gulped down the rest of the beer, laid a silver coin on the table, rose, and headed for the door. Melder sat and watched the scout stride away. He generally liked his women with a little more meat on their bones and considerably more concerned with the presenting a well-grooming and feminine appearance. But even clad in her dirty wounds, no, it but even clad in her dirty woods, runner armor, breeches, and boots, she was a pleasant sight. Vlint appeared at his elbow and gave a disproving snort, a mode of expression admirably suited to his bulbous blue nose. Though incongruously prissy for a hobgoblin. Melder sighed and turned his head to meet the balking, shaggy, bravos, sallow eyes. Bravos, bravos's sallow eyes. I take it you were eavesdropping, the human said, and think me too Gernulous? It's not for me to say, said Vlint, in a tone that convinced his opinion with utter clarity. None of the none of the door's other guards would have expressed disapproval, but he'd been in his master's employ for a long while. Ever since the days when Melder had been a thief in his own right, instead of a quasi-respectable innkeeper, and was thus inclined to take liberties. I didn't give up any of our patrons, he said. Something tickled Melder's wrist and forked tongue flickering a gray wedge-shaped head slid out from under the cuff of his long floppy sleeve. He caressed the restless viper with his fingertip, then coaxed it to slither back where it belonged. 